Hey, Jeff here from LGBTQ&A, and this week I'm talking to Dana Goldberg, one of my favorite people and comedians. We talk about her comedy, about having a gay brother, about being surprisingly sensitive, and then just incorrect assumptions we make about butch women and femme women. Before we get to it, though, if you like our show, please subscribe on iTunes. Subscribing, ranking us five stars, and leaving a comment on iTunes is one of the biggest ways you can help our show to grow. And then if you want to stay up to date on all new episodes and live shows, you can do that at lgbtqpodcast.com. And then don't forget to check out our old home at AfterBuzz TV. They are the number one place for TV talk discussions. All right, without further ado, here's Dana. Thanks for being here. Was that it? Did we start? I'm going to get so casual. That was um, the most gentle beginning <laughs> of anything I've ever had. Thank you. You'll see. It. That'll change. Okay, great. Uh, okay. I'm a phone a friend. Exactly. So I want to talk about your career. However, I was struck by the fact that you have a gay brother. I do. Just because it surprises me how not uncommon that is. We, two out of three kids in my family are gay. So older brother's gay, older sister straight. And my brother and I talk a lot about it. And as long as she acts gay in public, we don't we don't have a problem with it. It's not her fault. She was born that way. Um, yeah, my older brother, he's six and a half years older. And my mom got lucky. She got two out of three. That is so funny. I I have so many friends that's that case. There's a lot. There's a lot. I I mean, it's genetic. We haven't figured out what gene it is yet, which gene, but it's genetic. Come on. I mean, it has to be. I also think that maybe we are now more open to those inclinations more than ever before. Of course. Like I think about the GLAD study a lot where they said that about 7% of baby boomers identify as LGBTQ, but 20% of millennials. Which is insane. I think just as a society, and especially as we've moved forward, we've given the younger generation permission in ways yeah. to explore who they are without the same sort of consequences that the generation before them had. There was consequences for being out. There was a lot of fear, even in high school when you came out, it was, am I going to get beat up? Am I going to be ostracized? Or am I going to be, you know liked by a different group that I'm finally going to find my my people. It was scary. And I think now more and more, like, I'm not saying it's like the in thing, because I don't ever want to say that about a younger generation. Like these people really are exploring who they are, but they have the freedom to do it now. I mean, I know I'm older than you are. And even, I mean, I don't think I'm a generation older than you are, but I'm definitely older than you are, but it's even different between you and I. Absolutely. I mean, when, when I say that kids are out of the closet in high school or able to come out as anything on the LGBT spectrum, I, it blows my mind. Yeah. I have so much, I have so much admiration for them though, because the courage that some of these kids have and to be to it, and especially the ones that are living it publicly. Like when I was younger, like, there was definitely nothing on the World Wide web that I could look to. There was starting to be characters. I mean, it was right when Ellen was coming out for God's sake. And what did that do? It destroyed her career for years until she got back into her talk show. Oh, where, where how old are you when you came out? 18. Wow. Yeah, I had a, uh, there was a, <laughs> I didn't know I was gay. I think I knew I was gay. I don't know whose voice that was. But basically when I came out, uh, my summer after my senior year in high school, I was going to this gay bar with a fake ID. And I would, I was, I was there Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. I wasn't gay. I was there dancing on a speaker away from everybody else having a blast. And if everyone was like, oh, she gay? Oh, I'm not gay. Oh, at least you were able to ease yourself into it like that. Oh, yeah. Wow. When when did your brother come out in relation to you? My brother came out. I remember very specifically a phone call that I overheard. He was calling back to talk to my mom. And I stayed on the phone randomly and I was 10. And I heard something about him being gay. And I started to cry. 
which is so interesting. I didn't understand. I knew what it meant. My mom had explained it to me. So I remember when I was 10 learning my brother was gay when he was 16. And what's really interesting is even from that time until I was 18, I had friends who were like, hey, how do you feel about gay people? And my answer was always like, oh, two men is fine, but two women, ew, <laughs> which is just ridiculous. Um, but I, I, was, I didn't know about myself. All I knew is that there was something different. And the reason she had asked me is because her mom was gay and she had been with her partner for 25 years and I was about to go spend the night at their house for the first time. So it was really incredible, Jeff, because I had this wonderful experience with my best friend's mothers, and they were kind of my first experience and role models with lesbian women older that had been together for a really long time, and I think it started to like ease things for myself. And so when I ended up coming out when I was 18, one, my mother was already broken in from my brother, which is awesome, and my mom had a best friend when she was growing up that was a lesbian, so there was, I'm one of the lucky people that didn't have a horrible coming out story. It was very much, Dana, I love you. I don't care who you sleep with. I have to go to work. Please be careful. And I was like, okay, have a good night. That's just so fortunate to have so many queer people around you in yeah, your life. a lot. I didn't have any in any social circle of any kind. Really? Yeah. Where did you grow up? North Carolina. Oh. So I kind of knew that I was, no, I definitely knew I was gay in high school, but I just assumed it would be a thing I would never tell anybody ever. Right. <laughs> because I had no examples. Right. What, was this in the, the 80s and 90s, like during the height I of the AIDS out, crisis? Um, well, the height of the AIDS crisis was the 80s. Um, so in the 90s for me, no, I was... I came out, Jesus, I'm not that old, Jeff. I no, I'm thinking about your brother no, coming out. Oh, my brother coming out. No, well, yeah, let me think about that for a second. I was born in 76. My brother came out in 19, in around, I learned about that in 86. So yeah, it was the top of the, it was definitely a big part of the AIDS crisis. But what was interesting with, that was never a fear, I think, for my mom, was Jason getting sick that way, which is really interesting. That's, I, I want. I have to think that's I, unusual. I don't think it was. My mom and I never spoke about that. That's a really interesting question. I, I'll ask her sometime. I just think that um, our parents, like back then, or at least my parents, I think mm -hmm. they associated gay with AIDS. Of course. But even they subconsciously. Men exactly. With AIDS. It was very different for lesbians coming out. There was never association like that for us. And I think that's also because when we hear about the AIDS epidemic, we only hear the gay male perspective. Of course. And it's easy to think that it's only the thing that gay men, especially gay white men, were dealing with. But of course, in, we never hear about those sorts of statistics in the news because whenever there's a fight against HIV and AIDS, it's always to condemn the gay male community because it becomes a political issue. Right. When, when you came out, did you feel like you had to identify as a butch or a femme? No. And I think I fall right in the middle, which is really funny because like I'm very athletic, but I, I mean, I can wear a dress and feel really good about it, but I love performing in my tuxedos. You looking at you in a tuxedo and suit, it's a very, very like feminine issue to, or uh, image too. Thank you. It's still, I think woman. I, so I ask is I, I agree that you kind of fall in the line between butch and femme, but in reading about the queer woman experience, mm -hmm. feel free to tell me if I'm wrong, I tend to think that we've moved away from butch and femme as nouns, and they're just descriptor words, where sure. no, that's women... Sure, really that's well said, yeah. Oh, thanks. I think so, yeah. Women used to be butches or femmes, and that was kind of the only option. No, I think you're right. I especially think, you know, in the days of the Stonewall and things like that, it was very, very specific. You were a very butch lesbian, and there was a way you looked and the way you acted. The femme lesbians, they acted in a certain way and things like that. Um, it's interesting, uh, uh, Edie and Thea, uh, the long engagement, if you ever watch that. Um, Edie um, uh, Windsor's story with her partner. They were both very feminine women and they met in these like underground 
secret meetings with other femme women that, you know, didn't look like lesbians. And it's such a cool story, but they had to hide. Like it was one of those things that since they weren't outed by the way they look, they were able to stay safe, but they still couldn't meet in public. But no, I think for me, um, I never, I never identified that way. I think just because I kind of walked that middle line. Yeah. And so it's interesting though, when I, I mean, some of the women I've dated, usually I fall at say zero is super butch and 10 is super femme. I fall slightly more toward the butch side when it comes to just my personality, which is really funny on the exterior, but on the interior, like I'm all soft and gooey and emotional and stuff, which I think surprises people. Really? But I usually date more feminine looking women that have more masculine energy. They're not as communicative. They maybe don't share their emotions as much. It's really weird. It's very interesting. If you look at it, and, and I'm I'm not saying across the board because I know there's some people listening. This doesn't apply to you. But I know a lot of very butch, very staunch butch women that are the biggest teddy bears and criers and feelers and all of this. And they're very, very, very feminine women are stern and bitchy. And they're very like they're they don't really talk about stuff and things like it's really interesting. I agree, too. And I think with gay men, it's so easy to think like, oh, this twinky looking boy is like the bottom. And right. he's a very butch man at the top. Whereas like these, it's more fluid than that. Right. And I think that that's why in terms of like the female experience, words like masculine of center are so popular nowadays because yeah. it, it accepts that wide breadth of experience. Right. And I think, I mean, if any human being, any human being has a mixture of masculine and feminine traits, if you allow yourself to accept that and you allow yourself to indulge in that, you do. I mean, there's very masculine men that have different characteristics that someone would consider more feminine in the sense of like sharing emotions, talking, crying, or liking to cook, or those metrosexuals that want to get a pedicure, like you go. doesn't mean you're gay, but unfortunately in our society... We always think that if a boy cries or if they have some sort of what is considered a feminine trait of feeling, they get machoed up by society. Man up. Boys don't cry. Like, what a horrible thing we're teaching these kids. Yeah, I mean, I was taught that. Definitely. Same. Don't you think that we're getting moving away from that, though, a lot? I think we are. And I think what's really interesting is that I don't necessarily know if that's a parental movement or a child movement. I think that we, the, the people that... Uh, the youth is actually pushing that movement. I don't necessarily think it's a parental thing of allowing them. It's the child saying, I'm going to do this. That's fascinating. And I need you to accept me or you're not going to spend time with me. I don't necessarily know. And I, so I think a lot of the younger generation is actually pressing this movement. Um, and then it's getting passed along. Like they're teaching their parents. That's fascinating. Which I think is a, a really interesting role reversal. I also think that it's that women are leading the pack because we allow women to be tomboys and like express these masking qualities where if a guy was straight and was like, no, I want to do ballet. Right. I, I mean, I guess a lot of ballerines are straight, but um, you know what I'm saying? Like we don't allow them to be as feminine. There's not a word like tomboy for a, a gay. It's just that's true. fag. Yeah, that's true. It's That's very true. It's unfortunate. Do, you, do women, do you find that your queer friends throw around dyke, like the way that gay men throw around fag? No, no. I think that because I think that's such a politically charged word, like women own that, like I'm saying, like in the Stonewall movement and those sorts of things, like dyke was a very specific power to the people, that kind of thing. I think now it's used as an insult. Just see, to me, there's a very big difference to me with the word fag and the word faggot. I agree completely. It's massive. And it bothers me in my own community to hear the word faggot thrown around because I feel like 
it is just like the n-word i feel like it's just like any other word that is a derogatory word to describe a community and it's not something that i'm like we're taking that word back like i don't even use the word dyke much and i can't even think like when i would describe it but it's not even like I wouldn't go up to one of my best girlfriends and be like, what up, Dyke? Like, that's not something I don't think we're ever going to do. But you guys, I hear you all the time. Hey, fag. What's up, girl? Like, just walking around doing it. Yeah, my friend just bought a hat that says art fag. And I love it. I yeah. think it's amazing. But yeah, I think it doesn't bother me a bit. Neither does Dyke, though. I'm not one of those people that is really sensitive about, like, words that are used to describe the community as long as they're not u- being used in a way to hurt us. Of course. And that's why I think that's why I think faggot bothers I, me so much. I also probably wouldn't throw out the word dyke to like any of my right. queer lady friends. No. I also think that the word dyke is funny as a word, not the meaning behind it, but the word itself, that that card K sound. Right. You know, like Shakespeare. It's a comedy yeah, word. Yeah, Shakespeare used it all the time. Yeah. I mean, like Tammy and the Shrew. <laughs> like Kate of my consolation, Kate of Kate Hall. You I know? was like, how many times did Shakespeare, Shakespeare say dyke? And yeah. of the, sh- <laughs> the K, the hard K. <laughs> okay. You know, if you like repeat like dyke, 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 like it's almost comedy. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I do know what you're saying because as a comedian, there is definitely words that are funnier than others. I've never seen it that way, Jeffrey, but I'll accept that. Uh, we're starting here. <laughs> this doesn't feel like lesbian one-on-one, right? No. Okay, perfect. Because I have a one-on-one question. Okay, well, that's the same thing is that I don't, I'm definitely not going to speak for every lesbian. I can only speak from my experience. So if there's anyone listening and I just know I'm not speaking for you and Jeff's asking me questions. I don't think you know the answer to this question. Okay. But I want to know, do you know how the myth of scissoring started oh no i don't know who started the myth it had to have been a straight guy that was like watching lesbian porn and is like oh that's what they do which there's no lesbians there's i shouldn't say that there are some actual lesbians making lesbian porn i have a friend who's one of the producers and her name is dana dane she makes really good lesbian erotica however comma lesbian porn in the past is always these straight women with these horribly long fingernails where i'm like this is not real like someone's gonna get injured and they're doing this weird scissoring thing because they think like two vaginas rubbing up against each other feels good and it does but not in that position for 45 minutes it's very (laughs) widespread the belief (laughs) which is hysterical no one has that sort of arm strength i mean jillian michaels maybe has that sort of arm strength that's why it's she scissor- works out. That's right. But scissoring is fun. But at the same time, like there's other things that women do together that feel much better than that. It just take as much energy. I just am fascinated by the fact that like that's what like straight men envision. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Which I don't know why they would think that's. I don't know why they would think that's hot. In the way that I was saying that we've moved as a society away from these very like strict gender norms of like butches and femmes, I think that gay men are slowly expanding their sexual preferences between strictly tops, strictly bottoms. Really? And I think I'm, I'm just fascinated by the psychology around like why we prefer what and like how much like social stigmas play into that. Well, isn't there also like, I mean, I'm going to speak freely. Isn't there a pain issue? Like some guys, from what I understand, I've never done that, but it hurts to be a catcher. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, sometimes and if you're doing it wrong <laughs> right I mean I think there's certain things you have to do to like relax your partner right before yeah. you just go right in but do you find that yeah, no you're correct <laughs> I have a couple of gay male friends that and this is I don't know you'll have to tell me I'm gonna ask you about this in their relationship they're both tops and so they understand wait 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 hold on maybe they're both bottoms Whatever they are, they're both the same, and they realize that they may not be able to please their partner exactly the way they need to be pleased, so they're actually okay with him as a couple 
choosing someone else to experience what they're not willing to do with their partner, which may be receiving. Part of me thinks like good for them because right. there are so few queer people in the world. I'm like, for straight people, like, do you know how lucky you are? You have the whole world to date from. Um, right. Oh, or maybe it's like a big like food menu though. And so, <laughs> so you don't like, want to eat everything on the menu yeah, anyway. Like, factory, like there's just so many pages of this. I can't dare to <laughs> think about this. I bring up sexual preferences and men wondering if, do you find that women, queer women have such uh specifications as well. Oh, I think there's a myth, like the whole tops and bottoms thing is what you mean. Yeah. No, I think there are some women that definitely fall into that. I'm not one of them. Yeah. I'm definitely a switcher. Like I like being on top. I like being on the bottom, but I also think that you can also be on the bottom and be in a power position. Like you can have complete control of the situation just because you're on the bottom doesn't mean you're just lying there. So it's I a great th- lesson for everybody. Yes. If you're listening, just so you know that, um, I think that, there's always going to be people in the community that feel better in some sort of a role. And that's what they were taught to do. I know butch, very staunch butch women that will not let someone touch them. And I'm like, to me, that's a, there, there may be a whole other issue there. I don't know. It just seems like a very interesting choice where you're fine giving, but you don't want to receive. That's I, fascinating. I, I think it's fascinating. And I'm not expl- one of those people. They explain it as not wanting to be touched at all. Yeah, basically, it's I'm I'm taking care of you. I don't know how they get. How, wow. I don't know. Maybe someone listening would be able to answer that. How they get themselves. Is it like a, a masturbatory thing where they take care of themselves? Right, I don't because know. my first assumption would be like, oh, do they have some sort of sexual trauma where they don't want to of be course. touched? That would be mine too. I don't want to assume that for everyone, but of course. yeah, that, that would be my assumption, but I don't want you know, I don't want to make a bad assumption on that. So. Yeah. As you've gotten older, has sex changed for you? Oh my God. Yes. Also more just because I'm more comfortable with my body. Like when I was younger, I was a very chubby kid and that people made fun of me. I wasn't comfortable in my skin. Um, I was like five, eight and 180 pounds. You know, I was working the cinnamon roll and the Coke for breakfast my entire senior year, even though I was a soccer player and I had two days and I did track like all of that. I was just heavier. And so I was, there was body shame in that. I think everyone in society has a level of dysmorphia, but I think in certain, obviously in certain people it's higher and mine was higher as I've gotten older. And I mean, I'm definitely in better shape than I was when I was younger, but at the same time, it's just more of a like, I don't give a fuck. Like I'm over 40. I'm having a great time. I'm having the best sex of my life. I know that from feedback, I'm a, I'm, I'm a good lover. Like I know what I'm doing. Um, so I think as I've gotten older, sex has been more fun. Like the inhibitions have gone away. Um, I'm choosing partners that I can just like have a good time with, you know, that sort of thing. I I mean, that's basically it. Not everyone's going to feel that free. So if you don't find a partner that feels as free as you do, you're not going to be able to explore those things anyway. I think that you hit the nail on the head by saying that sex is fun. And I say that knowing how simple it sounds, but I feel like we really need to find and remind ourselves of that because it is such a serious thing. Well, it's also right now, everything. I mean, God, all of the Me Too movement and all these women that have been abused and and some men that have been abused, like there's so much stigma around sex right now because suddenly there's a confusion of what it is and when there's consent. And I'm like, there's really not confusion. I think there's just men that don't want to admit that they did or didn't wait for consent or they somehow forgot what it was or there's power positions but yeah I think that right now when you're in a consult you know a consenting relationship like have fun especially because in our community it's not to procreate we already know that so I'm not trying to make a baby I want to have a good time yeah (laughs) I'm not worried that there's going to be a pregnancy scare even at my age it's not like my girlfriend and I are going to go get drunk and I'm going to be like babe I am a month late I'm a month late I haven't started and we're going to freak out like it's not going to happen 
You mentioned the Me Too movement. We're in the middle of it, or maybe we're in the beginning of it. I guess we don't know. Right. But you as a comedian are in a lot of predominantly male spaces. Were you as affected by harassment as a queer woman? You know what? I don't think, and I don't know if it has anything to do with the fact that I'm queer or just because I, I had situations where there was definitely when I was at work before I was a comedian, I worked in a, a restaurant. One of my managers who everybody loved, and he was a really great guy. If I stop and listen to the things he said to me and to other people, he would have definitely been in trouble with HR. But everyone loved him and he was a great guy and no one said anything. I don't think he ever hurt anybody. I think he was one of those guys that was like, hey, Dana, if you've never had a chocolate sundae, how do you know you don't like them? And I was like, hey, and I don't want to say his name, but uh, have you ever had a chocolate sundae? And then he'd look at me and be like, oh yeah, good point. But it's one of those things. And I think that's really, if there's going to be sexual harassment, not if. One of the things that I don't think the lesbian community equates to sexual harassment because they can, can, they can defend themselves is a guy saying, you just haven't met the right man. Half an hour with me, I bet you won't be gay anymore. That is a level of sexual harassment. It's not being raped and it's not being touched and it's not having someone threaten your career, but it is saying, I have a power position over you. I know better than you do for your own sexual orientation. Let me show you. That's a problem. But you know, a lot of these lesbians are, you know, say something in retort that's very funny and they usually can handle themselves, but there's still that piece of men that think they can change women whether they are straight or gay, they think they have that power to do that. That's an issue in our society. Just because you're not facing sexual harassment, you are, I assume, facing discrimination in terms of like not getting work. You know, Jeff, I don't know about that. I, I feel like we as a society and women in general have an old tape. And I think things are shifting. And I think a lot of powerful women are laying the groundwork for even people like me being out. Like I would have never been able to do comedy like this 30 years ago. I was born in a time where people before me created the foundation where now I can now be out and perform out and be myself on stage. That wasn't always the case. And you never had to have a big coming out. You were just um, never out. really did. It was just kind of who I was. You know, I thought that if I was authentic on stage, um, I actually I thought it was the op op opposite. If I wasn't authentic, people were going to be able to see through me. So I just chose to tell gay jokes when I started. Would I be more famous now? Don't know. I feel really good about my career and what I've done this far. Would I be further along? I have nothing to compare it to. All I know is I love what I do. I have a great following and I've got a great fan base and I do a lot of great things for the community. So in my, in my eyes, I'm successful now. I have so much I want to do more. I don't know if I've been discriminated against because I was a lesbian or I didn't get jobs because I was a lesbian. I'm not even sure that's in the forefront of my mind. And I think a lot of, especially comedians in the LGBTQ world, we create so much of our own work. We don't rely on other people to give us work. We are going after it. Yeah. We're producing our own shows and our own theaters. We're creating our own festivals. We're creating our own work. So I think because maybe we have that fear that we're not going to get the job because we're gay, we go and create an opportunity for ourselves. I know so many hardworking LGBT comics that are doing really, really well on their own and they don't have to answer to anyone and they don't have to worry about they're going to have some jackass booker who's the straight dude, this blah, 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 blah. And then you have to change who you are to try and get that gig. No, thanks. Yeah. I'd rather create a different, I'd create a different path. From the outside, looking at the comedy world, it seems like there's been a big shift in terms of Louis C.K. is no longer there. A lot of women and people of color are getting um, mm -hmm. bigger names and a lot more work. And also, 
I think about how Joan Rivers and Robin Williams died fairly recently. They're two of the funniest people ever, ever. So do you feel like there has been a shift or am I just projecting? Um, Well, Louis C.K., the reason he's not around right now is because he needs to keep his hands to himself. Well, not to himself, actually. He needs to stop keeping his hands to himself in front of young female comedians. Um, He's still around. All these guys are still around. It's just that women, I don't think they're funnier now than they've ever been. There's just been more opportunities for them, and they're making themselves louder. Like, I, I don't always agree with some of these female comedians' sense of humor. Like, Sarah Silverman, I love her, but damn, she makes me uncomfortable sometimes. But fucking good for you. You are killing it. You know, you, she is killing it. And now she's so great on the political realm that she, you know, even though she's that shock value sometimes, she has a powerful voice and she's using it. I, you know, you think about like Tiffany Haddish and she's she's exploded. Fortune Feimster, dear friend of mine, like she is really, you know, she's doing her stuff and her, her shows and the, she's, you know, getting into that A-list stuff. I just think right now society is looking for comedians for relief from this administration and from everything that's happening. So I think some people are turning to entertainment that they may not otherwise give the attention to, but we have a, a, a situation right now where they're actually turning to us for information. So I think a lot of the times, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of the times my crowds are very mixed. And if they don't care about my sexual orientation as long as I'm funny. You said they're turning to you for information. Oh are my you, God. You, comedians? Yes. So so I, I feel like in the past people have turned to comedians for a distraction, but they're Both. turning to you for also information. Both. About what's you know, there's on. the saying now that, you know, we used to look at politi- politicians for information and comedians to laugh. And now we laugh at politicians and we look for comedians for information. You think about Seth Meyers, you think about Stephen Colbert and, um, uh, Samantha B. Samantha B. Thank you. I mean, these are comics. These are stand-up comedians that now are on late night television that are actually giving factual information to the general public because everything is so jacked up right now with this idiot in chief saying everything's fake news. Well, that's not true. Anything that's written about you, that's not flattering. You can't just label as fake news, but unfortunately he has a 60 million person following that thinks he's the Messiah, which is fucking terrifying but does it ever get too much yes you said it's terrifying i i 100 agree does it ever get too much where you can't make a joke about it yes for me definitely it is hard jeff with everything that's going on right now because i mean being a comedian is only a part of my my persona and it's a part of who i am i'm also jewish i'm a woman i'm living in a country right now that is terrifying what's going on um so as a comic yeah of course i it, the people look to me to give them some reprieve from this reality but sometimes i need a mental health day and i'm not kidding like i was scrolling twitter before i came here and i can feel my blood pressure going up i can feel myself getting angry and i have to give myself a break otherwise i'm going to be worthless to myself and the people that look to me to make them laugh otherwise i just turn into this angry comic i've never been that but i tell you what this administration sure is pushing me toward that some days is it also challenging to make jokes since things change so much? Like you yes. can't do a Kofifi joke anymore. Oh my God. No, it doesn't. I mean, the amount of news cycle right now that's coming through, I, you know, I do uh, some recorded videos and by the time we get them edited and out, there's been 400 new news stories and people have already, you know, done 400 different takes on what I just recorded. I'm sure you know this recording your podcast, you cover certain subjects and this comes out a week later and you're like, well, that was old news. I don't know if everyone's even going to remember the fact that, you know, the president had an affair with a porn star. I get frustrated because 
we have the moral high ground as liberals and Democrats, and we are taking people out of our own party because they do bad things and they deserve that, but the Republicans are not. Right. No, that's, it's incredibly it's frustrating. frustrating. Yeah. The, the people were the ones that voted Roy Moore out, not his, his constituents and not his colleagues. They supported him. That is a problem, and I completely agree. It's incredibly frustrating. We do live in a, a society, and I'm, I'm proud to be part of a democratic party where we hold our own accountable. And you know what? Uh, and, and I'm going to say this on, on, a, on basically the majority of the Republicans don't. They defend them. If there's someone in their party, they try and protect them, and we don't because we don't like one bad apple ruining our bunch. We'd rather get rid of that apple. A lot of the times, and I think that's the better way to handle it. You mentioned bartending for 10 years, 11 years, 10 years? Yeah, it's 11 years. 11 years. When did you stop? I quit bartending in 2008, and I started doing full-time comedy in 2008. So I've been doing comedy about 14 years, but without any sort of a day job for 10. It'll be, it'll be 10 years this year. That's a big accomplishment. I feel so fortunate. Like it's, I wouldn't, I'll do this until I literally can't anymore. I just don't want to. I mean, I would love to find more work in Los Angeles that pays, but a lot of comics know that unless you're doing TV or film, you can't make a lot of money here. So my money's on the road. Is that your dream to hopefully do TV and film? Oh my God. Yeah. I would love to have my own talk show. I want to get off the road and not do as much. I want it to be because I want to and not because I have to. And right now it's still a have to. Gotcha. Yeah. So does that mean you are, do you still worry about money at your level? Um, I, I think I worry about money because I'm a Jew. <laughs> I don't necessarily think it's a level thing. Like I, I think people could probably look at my uh, career and they look at who I'm working with and they look at what I'm doing. They think I'm making a ton of money and they have to remember I work for a lot of nonprofits. So even though I do get paid obviously for everything I'm doing, it's on a different level then. And, and I gave a lot, I gave a lot of pro bono work to the community um, because I believed in it. So it's one of those things that it's not worry about money. I'm, I'm, my bills are paid. I have a little bit in savings. Um, but I'm, I'm constantly worried about the next gig. And I think as a performer and as an artist, for those people listening, like you can be on the A-list and you can be making millions of dollars a year. But if you watched, if you watched, um, uh, Rob, you said Robin Williams and, uh, John Rivers. John Rivers. If you watch John Rivers documentary, her self-worth was based on her calendar and when she opened up her planner, if that thing was not full, even at her success level and at her age, she freaked out there was something wrong. I don't ever want to get into that place where my self-worth is based on whether or not my calendar is filled every hour of every day. I would like to have a more balanced life. I would like to have a partner and a relationship at home that I can actually build and put you know, um, time into. But I also, at this point, I have, you know, I have to be dating someone that understands that I'm going to be gone a lot. And there's a trust level there, but there's also a trust level for me. You know, I understand that me being gone a lot creates a situation where their may, needs may not be being met either. And for us to have that communication of, you know, I miss you. I need more of this or I need more of that when you're on the road. And um, it's doable. And I think a lot of people think it's hard to date a comedian because we're around so many people. I always get that. Or isn't it hard because you're around women all the time or just throwing themselves at you? And I'm like, what? Whose career do you think? Like, th this isn't reality. It's not reality. Like, I'm, I, thank you. I appreciate you think that's happening, but it's not. I've never had a one night stand on the road. I've never taken anyone back to my hotel. Perhaps I'm missing out on a hell of an opportunity here. and Maybe I need to start over, but... I'm kidding. It's it's not that's not who I am. It's not my personality. Oh, that's funny. See, my assumption with dating a comic is that it would be hard on your side because people expect to have Dana Goldberg, a comedian, and you're like, oh, I just want to talk to you. Right. This is a date. See <laughs> that 
what's really nice is most people that I've gone out with did not know who I was or what I did beforehand, which is great. The only thing that, and you said something that sparked something that you'd be worried about being on all they the time. That's not, yeah, that's definitely not it. In fact, I think if anything, the people appreciate that they're dating Dana and not, Hey, I'm comedian Dana Goldberg. Let me entertain you this afternoon. Like that. I wouldn't want to date that person. I know. Ew. No. So I guess I ask, cause I have that issue where like I go on a date and I sometimes I feel like why I feel like they think, why is he not like juggling and telling right. jokes? I'm sure you do have to deal with that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, do you, would that be enjoyable for either of us? No. I mean, it's, it's still my work, yeah. but the other thing is, is like, there's, I'm basically the same persona on stage as I am off. A lot of people have different personas. I have a lot of colleagues that are very, very different on stage as they are on, but when people see you, that's who they think you are. And so people definitely think I'm Dana Goldberg, their comedian all of the time. And I'm not, I'm actually a lot more, a little more subdued. Um, I don't need to be the center of attention, especially when I'm in groups. I'm an observer. I like to sit back. And a lot of it's because I'm also observing for more material. I think that's what it was. The hardest thing that I've, and I, I'm going to give this to the people I date. They have to understand that things they say and do may end up in my act. That, in my opinion, would be the hardest thing of dating a comic is because people are valuable. They make jokes. They make things are just funny in general. But if that happens in my life, what I usually do is I turn around the stories and I either make them past tense or change situations so that my present girlfriend or my present partner, such a weird word, my present girlfriend, if she comes to a show, people aren't going to go, oh, that's her. That's her that did that. Oh, that's her that has that. Oh, that's her that went through that. So I always make it a past tense joke so that I can protect them in some way. Because even though I'm on stage, they don't necessarily have to be. And I'll also never use anyone's names. Like there's still a little bit, I mean, I still want to respect the people that date me and make them feel safe. But at the same time, when someone's like, you can't say that on stage. And I'm like, ah, you're not allowed to tell me what I can say on stage. That's very protective of you. Because I have so many writer friends who they tell their dates, like, by the way, like I will have free reign to write about any of this. It's just assumed. Yeah. And I do have free reign. I mean, the person, you know, the, the people I date, they have to understand that they really do. And, and the, one of the things that I know about myself, and if you look at my material, I'm not a mean comedian. Like I talk about situations because they're funny, but a lot of the reasons people laugh at them is because they've also experienced these same situations. That's how I get an audience to laugh. They have to be able to see themselves in my material. I was once told that every joke, it starts with what you're angry at, angry at a person, angry at the world, society. Do you believe that? No. Is that true? I don't think, I, there's different ways to write jokes. And a friend of mine, uh, Jessica Kirsten, she's one of the funniest people on the planet. She told me once, I was, you know, I get writer's block just like every other comic. And she's like, write down five things that make you angry, five things that you love, five things that you um, like can't stand, but they're not all negative. Everyone thinks that comedy comes from a negative place and it doesn't necessarily do that. Like I've just had situational things in life where, you know, it, it's just funny. Like my mom and I were driving in Albuquerque. I was with someone I dated and we passed the preschool I went to. And my mother looks at her and she goes, you know, Dana went to that preschool. She was very sweet. There was a lot of disabled children that went there. She taught the deaf boy how to tie his shoe. She was very good friends with the girl with the swollen head. <laughs> And I, in my head, I was like, well, I was a really sweet kid. And then my second thought was, why the hell was I at a school for disabled children? Like, there's nothing angry about the story. There's no, there's nothing horrible that happened. It's just one of these insane situations where 
my mom just says I went to school for disabled children. I had no idea. And she like makes you the martyr. Yeah. I'm <laughs> glad that I was such a, a, a good person. But you know, Susie with the swollen head, she's probably all grown up. And her mom's like, Susie, you were so sweet to that little lesbian girl, Dana Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's an amazing place to leave it at. Let's do it. Thank you for being here. Jeff, it's a pleasure. You can have Mel come back anytime you want. Thanks. And that's our show. Big thanks to Dana for this. I should probably mention too that this summer I'm going to be doing AIDS Life Cycle where I'll be cycling from San Francisco to Los Angeles to raise money for the life-saving services that the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and LA LGBT Center provides. If you want to or are able to contribute, I would absolutely love that. And every little bit counts. I have a page up at tofighthiv.org slash go to slash jeffmasters1. You can also find links across all my social medias, my Twitter, my Instagram. Twitter is also a great place to recommend guests. I love hearing from you each week. And then if you like our show even a little bit, please subscribe, rank us five stars, and leave a comment on iTunes. Leaving a comment is one of the biggest ways that new people find our show. You can also sign up for our newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com to stay up to date on all new episodes and live shows. Special thanks to our partners at Panoply, our old home at AfterBuzz TV, the Elon University Studio in Los Angeles, Jay Sigmund Murdy, and everyone for listening. We'll see you next week.